0: Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, my name is Brian, and welcome to a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold episode. If you're new to the show and you don't know what that means, well, it means we're reposting a show from earlier in our history that pertains typically to something that is happening currently. So sometimes this has to do with a news event, a death, um, something that um, has caught everyone's attention. Sometimes it's a pop cultural moment, like, in this case, this weekend Top Gun Maverick finally hits theaters. Not only has it been almost all of my life since the last Top Gun movie came out, uh, it's also been several years since this movie was supposed to come out. And I've got to say, the anticipation, the fervor for Top Gun Maverick is at a fever pitch. Uh, I've got a group of friends. We all go see movies on Sunday nights. Murdoch often joins us. And I know that the plan this Sunday is for a whole bunch of people to go late And watch Top Gun Maverick. Now, what we decided to do is take an episode that originally aired of this show uh, back in December of 21. So it's about six months old. And it's rooted in a listener letter that we got specifically asking a question about Terry Nunn and the band Berlin. But of course, if we're going to talk about Berlin, it's almost impossible to talk about Berlin without talking about a song called Take My Breath Away. So, this is the Top Gun Berlin episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Originally aired as episode 70, now aired as a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold. If you want to get involved, if you've got a comment, if you've got a review, if you see the movie and you want to let us know what you think, we are the story guys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Always remember, you can review the show wherever you download it. We appreciate that. It helps us a lot. And you can get involved and see other things we're up to and keep tabs on the show at WeAreTheStoryGuys.com. So now, without further ado, it's a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold episode, Top Gun and Berlin. Let's do this. Up top, a content warning here. Now, Try to keep this show pretty friendly in terms of content, um, at least considering that it's a show about rock music, and the two most commonly associated bedfellows to rock are sex and drugs. (laughs) And, you know, we're, we're normally not looking to be unnecessarily crude, but we are going to encounter a more mature subject matter today. That comes out of the mailbag. This comes from Kendall. Kendall writes, you guys are awesome, loving the stories, loving the show, wondering if you can look into this one for me. Uh, if you look on Berlin's second album, Pleasure Victim, Terry Nunn is listed as the lead singer of the band. But on the back cover of the album, it reads Terry Nunn dash vocals, comma, BJ's, BJ's period, BJ's. What I heard was Terry Nunn was doing certain favors to get radio DJs to play Berlin songs. Now, is this something you can investigate for me and find the truth? (laughs) Ah, I can't believe Murdoch's not here for this one. Oh, good Lord. Um, Wow. Wow. Okay, let's just address Kendall's question directly first, okay? Does the pleasure victim back sleeve actually credit Terry Nunn with BJ's? Yes, that is true. Is it known that Terry Nunn had a sexual relationship with someone at the radio station, the specific radio station, that eventually breaks her band into the mainstream? Yes, that is also true. But as for what is really happening on that album cover, here's what I found out. That was a joke and a way to mess with people. So let me give you the punchline, and then let's talk Berlin. So do you know what a runout is on a vinyl record? It's the part between where the music ends and where the label starts. Okay, so just picture a big vinyl record. And you know, there's like, it sort of looks different. The texture's different because there's nothing grooved into the record there. So if you have this album on vinyl, Pleasure Victim, in the runout, they printed the words. Bad jokes, comma, you fool, exclamation point. That was on side B. On side A, they carved in the words mechanically aided orgasms, which was a play on the fact that they were on a small record label at the time called M-A-O record label. So they were being cheeky. This was an amazing way to mess with the audience. And in the larger context of Berlin and Terry Nunn, this makes total sense because just to put it frankly, Terry Nunn was always okay with making it about sex. In fact, this is sort of the attitude that makes Berlin. Now, I know it's easy to sort of erase everything but take my breath away when you think about Berlin now in 2021. And undoubtedly, that's the song that cements them into pop culture for all time. But that's at the end of Berlin, not at the beginning. The song that actually broke them on the scene is a song called Sex. Or if you see it on the label, it is Sex. Parentheses, I'm uh, a, and then dot, 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 parentheses. And they wrote this song explicitly in an attempt to get played on K-Rock Radio in LA. Now, I know if Murdoch was here, we're both old radio guys, he'd have a story about K-Rock. K-Rock is important to us. Um, now, K-Rock is known for Loveline, it's known for Kevin and Bean, but I always associated it with this thing called the Weenie Roast, So if you paid attention to Alt-Rock in the 90s, it was this annual concert that started in 93, and they still do it. And around the turn of the century, as the internet and as illegal downloading are taking off, you would start to see people uploading versions of stuff that had come out of the weenie roast, right? And it always just made this impression in my brain that this was the station that was breaking rock and roll on the West Coast. But K-Rock actually has this amazing history. Starting in 1924, it's actually an offshoot I mean, the radio station itself is actually an offshoot of a Presbyterian church. Now, they eventually sell the signal in the 60s. It gets passed around a ton in the 70s. Shadow Stevens is involved on and off, if you know that name. There's a period where they try to put on a Sly and the Family Stone concert, and they run out of money before they pay the band. So the concert promoter pays the band and then takes a small ownership stake in the company, and they, like, head... The way the company was owned at the time, there was this diverse set of owners, people who owned little pieces of it. And so this concert promoter comes in alongside dairy farmers. There's like two guys that are just dairy farmers who happen to own a piece of this radio station. Wild stories, if you want to look into the history of K-Rock. But in different eras, K-Rock becomes hugely influential for different reasons. Late 70s, they become a beacon for punk rock. And then, as the decade turns, that starts to morph... With new leadership into this format they call Rock of the 80s. Now, this was like an early version of an all-encompassing rock umbrella format. They're doing, they're playing stuff nobody else in the country will play, and they're playing stuff like in next to each other that's strange. So they'll play Ramones and they'll play Devo, but then they'll play U2 and they'll play the Police and then they'll play the Stones and then they'll play the Beach Boys. They might even play Funkadelic and Prince and Arrested Development. So there was an appreciation married to an irreverence, and it made it the place that you wanted to put your music if it was edgy and exciting, or if you wanted it to be perceived that way. So if you're a band in L.A., and you're trying to get heard, this is where you want to get. And so Berlin writes this ridiculous song called Sex with the goal of getting it played on K-Rock. And let me tell you, it is a ridiculous song. Like, I don't think it probably held up very well then. It definitely doesn't hold up now in 2021 with attitude changes about the way we should talk to each other and the things we should talk about, uh, men and women. Yeah. So hasn't aged, but it's interesting. Um, so I think Terry was a big part of this because when Terry Nunn is involved in the band, the point is always commercial success. That's what this story is really about, the tension at the core is that there is Terry on one end, and she's the commercial sex appeal, and then there's the songwriter, the founding member, John Crawford, on the other end. Now, I want to be very clear that I am not saying Terry is not talented, because she is. She's great. She's fantastic. But Terry always planned to be famous. It's very clear. She just was not sure how she was going to pull it off. But she seemed to have three ideas, acting, singing, and sex appeal. And she was willing to combine those things as needed. A couple of biographical notes that help this make sense. So, Terry Nunn's dad was an MGM contract child actor. Now, I didn't know much about this, but I did throw a UT dissertation about Govalls, about the studio system of the 30s through the 50s into the show notes. So, if you want background, grab a cup of coffee or a beer and check that out. This is crazy stuff. Now, this is what churned out and sort of destroyed folks like Judy Garland and Elizabeth Taylor. So when you hear sort of like shrouded references to how rough their lives were, this is part of the reason. The studio system's insane, man. They would sign these children, literal children, to these contracts where they just owned them. And then they would churn out movies. Like, you hear the joke about pornography being made quickly. Like, they were making movies in the 30s with an intense rapidity. So... This eventually chews up Terry's dad, and he, much like you hear stories from that era, he turns to alcohol. He eventually takes his own life. She's 13 years old when this happens. But I think she must have seen sort of a strange glamour in what he'd come from, or maybe she just had some connections to it, and it looked like a route out of, you know, what she was stuck in, and maybe she just didn't know any different. I don't know. But she starts actively looking for acting jobs as a teenager, as a teenager. So in 1976, she auditions for a little movie called Star Wars. I actually didn't believe this when I read it. And then I found the video. When R2 has been safely delivered to my forces, then you get your reward. You have my guarantee. What's the little droid carrying that's so important? Okay. The plans and specifications to a battle station with enough firepower to destroy an entire system. Now, our only hope in destroying it is to find its weakness, which we'll do from the data I stored in our 2. Okay, now we captured the plans in a raid on the Imperial. So ship. that's in the show notes. You can watch it. There's like five minutes of it. It's her and Harrison Ford clearly sitting on a couch reading the script to Star Wars. <laughs> which is a crazy pop artifact. Never, never in a million years had I thought or known that. She also says that she was straight up offered the part of Lucy on Dallas at one point. And then she decides to turn it down because she's still trying to make this decision about which way she's going to get to the top. Is it going to be acting? Is it going to be music? And with the... Lucy job, it was going to take her entirely away from music. And she, I think was sort of hedging her bets and wanting to do both. So she didn't want to take a job that was going to pull her out of the music game for that long. I, it, it's really interesting when you look at her career and the choices she was making deliberately, I mean, I want to be very clear before I tell you this next part that I, I want to be very respectful. I think Terry actually gets short shrift as a bit of a feminist icon. Like, she's sort of a forgotten feminist icon of the 80s. I mean, we talk about Madonna. We talk about these other folks who, who came in and sort of took control in a time that it was hard to do that as a female. Terry makes bold moves early. Uh, and here's one of those bold moves. In 1976, published in 1977, she poses in Penthouse Magazine. Now, I don't know if I've told you the year she was born. But she was born in 1961. So I'm going to let you do the mathematics there. And I don't know the whole story. Very little of this seems like it was put on her, though. At the very least, she sort of recast the narrative, which is a feat in itself. But it seems like she was in control the whole time. So the shoot's in 76. And the narrative is that she convinced the magazine that she was older than she was. This is the story she tells now. Now, nonetheless... Her photos were published under a different name, and for years, none denied that they were her because of the obvious issue. But I feel like this is important to mention. I'm not just bringing this up to talk about, you know, something that might be scandalous. I feel it's important to mention in the context of this question and of this whole story Because it adds context about how Terry Nunn viewed her sex appeal and why doing things like writing a very explicit song about sex that's going to get banned in middle America, which is what happens, but provocatively gets played on K-Rock, which was the whole point, and putting a silly, silly thing in the run out on a record like Bad Jokes, You Fool, slash BJ's, why it all starts to feel like the business plan. But... We've totally skipped the middle. How did Terry Nunn go from casting couches with Harrison Ford to fronting a rock band? That's the question. (laughs) And to make that connection, I want to turn to that other dude that I mentioned. This is the songwriting side of Berlin. His name is John Crawford. Now, the genesis of Berlin was a new wave rock band called The Toys. They formed in Orange County, 1976, the same year Terry's on the casting couches in in Magazine Centerfolds. Now, the way the band itself likes to tell this story is that John Crawford was a high school athlete he learns to play bass when he's recovering from an injury. And then he has a music teacher introduce him to these other guys, who I guess are also students of the same music teacher, and they form this punk band. And they have a lead singer named Ty Copp. Yes, that is true. Uh, after a few shows, they decide Ty is not the guy, and that Toys is not the name. And they, I guess they have a band meeting, and they say that they want people to think they're sophisticated and European. So they literally changed their name to Berlin. That is the reason they are called that. Now, it's interesting because there are a couple of other lead singers that come in and out of Berlin who go on to have some success in their own rights. The first one is Tony Childs. Do you remember her? She goes on to be known for a few minor hits in the 80s. One of them is probably the most famous. is called Stop Your Fussin'. So that's sort, that's sort of a deep pull, but you might recognize her. Then she's out. It just sort of doesn't work, I think, for either of them. And so they're still looking for a singer. And Terry Nunn happens to be looking for a band to join because this is in that point now where she's decided she wants to see if acting or singing take off, and she's trying both of them. And so she answers an ad. It's called Musician's Contact Service in Hollywood. The band places an ad there. In 1979, she answers it. They hit it off, and they work on a single. It's called A Matter of Time. It comes out on Renegade Records that same year, and they get a TV gig. I don't know if you've ever heard of this show, but there's this show called Hollywood Heartbeat. We're going where the heart of the city meets the sounds of the 80s. It all happens here on Hollywood Heartbeat your host for Hollywood Heartbeat, Bob Welch. And this was like the precursor to MTV. Gist, Late 70s, early 80s. Syndicated show. It only lasted one year. But it was basically music videos strung together with some interviews and some wraparound content and an occasional live performance. And it was hosted by Bob Welch, who was played guitar in Fleetwood Mac for a while. Now, to tie it to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories more succinctly... <laughs> Here's the fun little anecdote I found out the theme song, the Hollywood heartbeat was written by Carmen Apeace. So go back and check out drummers versus the rest of the band an episode from the show just about a month ago. If you want a lot of premium Carmen of peace content, but it, that's really funny. Carmen of peace actually not only wrote the theme song, he eventually records it on, on his own as his own song. So Berlin does a performance in this show. I put it in the show notes. Highly recommend a viewing, right? You you need to see the shtick they're doing at this time. It's it's awesome. Terry's purposely being like robotic, like acting almost like she's an android. The band is almost synchronized. There's a very heavy craftwork vibe happening, and that's sort of what they were after initially. And I mean, they have some heat. You also will be struck by how young Terry Nunn looks in this video. So some bigger record labels start showing interest. But this speed bump happens where Terry still can't decide what she's going to do. She can't decide. And I really do think this is this is a woman in control of her own decisions and her career. And she's fine. I like I don't care what you want me to do. I'm going to try what I want to try. So she goes back and does some acting. So you can look up her filmography. Nothing huge. I mean, she never lands Star Wars, obviously. But she's on a lot of shows and sitcoms, network stuff. I mean, she does some stuff for a while. And... The band gets Virginia Macalino to record their first record. And this record ends up being called Information. Now, this is an amazing rabbit trail. But there was a band in the early 80s that was like a punk, like I'm putting multiple U's in the word punk, punk band called Beast of Beast. That band is later, I mean, it is fronted by Virginia Macalino, But this is after the Berlin stint. Um, they put out one record. You can you can find it floating around on the internet. It's crazy. Uh, but before joining Berlin, Virginia was in a band called Virginia and the Slims, and they basically just played cover songs in the LA punk club scene. But if you dig around YouTube, you can find live recordings of this band just playing a random club on a Saturday night in 1978 or whatever, and it's awesome. Plus, Virginia goes on to date Joey Ramone in the 90s. This sort of becomes the closest she gets to like true fame. But she's obviously, with all of the things I just told you, way too punk to be in Berlin. So that doesn't work out. They they make the record. She doesn't write the songs. She wants to write the songs, so she doesn't stick around. She ends up starting Beast of Beast. I mean, seriously, go listen to Beast of Beast. So John basically decides maybe Berlin's not going to work out. So he takes a gig singing for another band called Fahrenheit, but he has a handful of songs that he doesn't think he can handle that he doesn't take to Fahrenheit. He thinks they really need to be sung by a female. And so while he's focusing on Fahrenheit, he calls Terry and he says, do you want to put vocals down on a couple of these things? Like I I get the vibe that it was supposed to sort of just be for fun. And he, he, openly says like this is going to be my side project i'm going to work on this in my spare time but fahrenheit is my main gig so they end up putting out a two-sided single for enigma and suddenly the traction starts of course right when you're not trying for it now i want to remind you that striper was on enigma this is an important point if murdoch was here he would want to point out that's striper is the band that makes enigma records in the 80s but this single that they put out on Enigma as Berlin, it gets them enough cash to put out the first version of Pleasure Victim. Now, Pleasure Victim eventually gets acquired and it gets put out, uh, I believe on Geffen. But they make the thing the first time for $2,900. And it is for this project that they sit down and they plan out How are we going to get on K-Rock? Because that's obviously the thing we need to do to kick it up a notch. And that's when they create the song Sex. So, now we're caught up. This song, two notes. None has since confessed that they openly rip off Love to Love You Baby. Sex. And, and they really do. The Donna Summer track, pinned by Giorgio Moroder, And this is ironic, because Giorgio Moroder becomes a big part of Berlin's success later. But, this is Terry talking. We stole from that song, we took the bass line, we totally stole from him and just inverted it. Now, I also saw a source stating that this song was inspired by Terry's relationship with Richard Blade. Now, if we have any radio nerds in the house, you know who Richard Blade is. He, at the time, was working at a certain radio station called K-Rock. This song actually gets them enough attention to start doing some interesting things. And one of the interesting things they get to do is sign with Gavin Records. But the other one is they get to perform at the second Us Festival. Fun little digression here. I actually did not know about this. Steve Wozniak threw a music festival twice, 1982 and 1983 Berlin plays the second one and it loses $12 million, but you can find the whole Berlin performance online. Obviously in the show notes, they close with sex. And so to bring this back to Terry and the sex appeal angle, this is a steamy performance. At one point, she literally has her legs wrapped around John's head, and he's down on his knees in front of her. Now, I couldn't find anything in the research that said Terry and John were ever romantic, but I got to say, steamy thing to do on stage together over and over and over. Wow. So, at this point, Berlin is becoming a big deal. 1984, they released their third record, the second one with Terry, because remember that first one was was with uh, Virginia. And it is called Love Life. And it has a song on it that you probably know called No More Words. This becomes a hit. And partly because it's on a movie soundtrack. I don't know if you remember this movie called Vision Quest. But (laughs) it was on that soundtrack. And they released a single of songs from the movie. And this was the B side. The A side was Crazy For You by Madonna. But this song is important for two reasons. First, it's the, their initial uh, foray into the Billboard Top 40. It peaks at 23. It marks, secondly, their first work with that guy that I mentioned earlier. The guy that they sort of ripped off for sex? His name is Giorgio Moroder. Now, very quick primer on this dude. Father of disco, massive influence for decades and decades. In everything. He becomes a massive force in movie music. But then he works with everybody from Bowie to The Cure to Daft Punk to Shooter Jennings to Sia to Britney Spears to Blondie. He's got some sort of direct line or some sort of influence on that whole list of people and a whole bunch more. But a lot of his heft comes from his combining of music with film. Let's just for a second, I think we've mentioned this on the show, like talk about the fact that movie music doesn't really have the same presence in our society as it used to. This is peak movie music time. Now we recently did a, a a bedtime stories retold re upload of our very first episode, which is about the ghostbusters theme song. And so we do talk about it in there, right? Ghostbusters back to the future and how big, those songs were and how it was a big thing when you were you were pretty sure your movie was going to be a success you wanted to have the right song to carry it so you could take over the radio just like you were going to take over the multiplex so this is in that same time period we have vision quest a movie you may or may not even remember but which helps push berlin on to the billboard charts. And then we've already talked about the fact that you know who Berlin is. What you really know who they, regardless of who you are. What you know about Berlin is another movie song. Let's go there. So, Morodor gets a call in 1986 from a guy named Jerry Bruckheimer. Now, they'd worked together before. But Bruckheimer most recently had worked on films like Flashdance and Beverly Hills Cop. And he says to Moroder, I'm working on this movie about a naval fighter weapons school, and I need songs for the soundtrack. So this guy, Giorgio Moroder, writes a tune called Danger Zone, and they get it recorded by Kenny Loggins. Now, Bruckheimer's into it. He's like, dude, that is perfect, but I uh, might need something for a romantic scene. What do you got? So our boy Giorgio pulls out a synthesizer because it's the mid eighties and he works up this bass sound and he gets this instrumental track working, but he doesn't have any lyrics. And obviously that's going to be a problem. Plus his normal songwriting partners are all on other projects. They're not available and they don't have time to help him. So this is where we get to a classic Hollywood story. So, A few years before this moment in 1986, there is a guy named Tom Whitlock who moves from Springfield, Missouri, shout out to Springfield, Missouri, a city I've spent plenty of time in, to Los Angeles, and he wants to start a band. But while he's trying to start a band, he is working in a now defunct recording studio with a friend of his. And one day they're in this studio, and Giorgio is in there, Uh, unclear as to why. And Tom hears him complaining about the brakes on his Ferrari because at this point in his career, that's where he's at. He is driving a Ferrari to now defunct studios. So Tom is a Midwestern guy and he's looking for a break. And so he's worked on a car or two and he listens to what Giorgio describes. And he's like, the dude needs brake fluid. So he goes, he buys brake fluid. He returns. He asks for the keys. He fixes the car in the parking lot. And Giorgio's pretty impressed. So he hires him to work at his studio. And I'm not sure what he was doing at the studio, but I think it was like sort of grunt work or basic engineering or something, right? But in this moment, flash forward a couple years, in this moment where he has this amazing instrumental track with no lyrics, he suddenly remembers that he's got this guy in his stable who might be able to help him. So he calls Tom and he says, Tom, I need a romantic tune for a fighter pilot movie. And Tom's like about to leave for the day. So he gets in his car and on the way to his house, I'm sure he's sitting in some L.A. traffic, he writes like 90% of what becomes Take My Breath Away. Unbelievable. They get a demo cut with studio singers and Bruckheimer likes the song so much. True story. He likes it so much. They actually create a sex scene for Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis in this movie because of the song. So when it becomes time to record it, who do you call? The answer actually is not Berlin. Uh, The first call is to the motels. Do you remember the motels? That doesn't end up happening, though they did at some point record a demo version of it because you can find that. They released it on um, on some sort of retrospective somewhat recently. But when they can't get them, Giorgio remembers that he produced a little song called No More Words like two or three years before this. And Terry Nunn becomes the voice we hear when Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis make it in one of America's biggest movies of all time, pop culturally. I didn't see a lot of sexy content at a young age, so... When I did encounter this at some point, which I think I was fairly young, it got burned in my mind. Let's just say that. It was a U.K. and a U.S. number one hit in 1986. It tops the charts in Canada, tops the charts in the Netherlands, tops the charts in Ireland and Belgium. And it was the fifth best-selling single of 1986 in the U.K. It's also the song that destroys Berlin as a band. Remember how I told you there were always two competing forces in this group? Terry? and she was the commercial success, and John was the artistry, this burns John up. Because this is like maybe the only Berlin song that he doesn't write. And it's the one that catapults them, right? It's a tale as old as the recording industry itself. The way a band perceives itself and the way the world perceives the band and that tension that exists between those two things is usually the centrifugal force that destroys careers. So, short... I'm making the long story short. The next album tanks and they quit. But I want to continue this forgotten feminist icon narrative, right? Terry ends up retaining the rights to the name. I couldn't find a lot of details on if there was a fight over this or anything. It takes a little while, but she gets the the rights to the name. And over the next several decades, She does a lot of stuff that you do when you have the rights to a name of a band that was really, really successful for a short period of time. There are Terry-only versions of this band where, I mean, where she's the only original member. There's nostalgia tours with other bands from the era like the Go-Go's. They do that in the late 90s. There's a band reunification through a VH1 reality show where they get John back for a while. And eventually there's a new album in 2019 where John Crawford is involved. And then last year, there's an orchestral version of the hits, so you can, you can take your pick. There's all of these things out there. But the one constant, the one constant, once the success starts, is Terry Nunn. So salute to her, man. She killed it. Um, a couple of last random discovery side notes worth mentioning for some hardcore fans of the show. We like to connect things back to hair metal and to hard rock. So Berlin's no more words actually had a second producer listed on the track with Giorgio Richie Zito. Now if Murdoch was here, he would point out that Richie Zito worked with a lot of bands and artists across all genres, but he definitely logged hours with poison and white lion. So there you have that. Now here's another fun thing. And this is specifically for a particular super fan of the show in 2001. There was a small label tribute to Marilyn Manson with a couple dozen bands you've never heard of and Berlin and they do dope show. So there you have it. Salute to Terry Nunn. If you've got a question like Kendall, you can always write us. We are the story guys at gmail.com. We are willing to go to the corners of the internet into some weird places and to some weird Marilyn Manson compilations if the job calls for it. Thanks for writing the show, Kendall. Uh, I hope we did it justice for you. Again, we are the story guys at com. Murdoch should be back next week. And in the meantime, please, by all means, keep telling stories.